What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome along to the Our World Cups podcast series by 90 Min. On this edition, we'll be looking back at the 2010 tournament held in South Africa and what a tournament it was. What a panel I've got alongside me to look back on that fantastic tournament. Uh, first up, Andy Headspeeth, editor of uh, the Players' Tribune Football. Welcome, mate. How are you? Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm good. I'm slightly conflicted. I'm very happy to be here, of course, but I'm kind of sad that you've got me on for possibly the worst World Cup of my lifetime. But um, yeah, still very happy to be here. Right? Well, I, I just sold the tournament as being this really good tournament and, and he's come along and just bulldozed it down. No, there's, there is plenty to talk about. And I mean, there are lots of very good elements as well, which we'll get on to. But I mean, we have to sort of address the elephant in the room that a lot of it was dire. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there, I'm sure. Uh, also joining us, uh, Toby Cudworth, head of UK written content at 90 Min. How are you? Morning, mate. All good. Um, very similar sentiments to Andy. It's a tournament I don't look back on too fondly because of what happened to England. But hopefully we can gloss over that um, quite quickly and we can look at Spain and the other elements of the tournament that, that we did enjoy. Yeah, brilliant stuff. And also joining us, uh, special guest, La Liga TV presenter, Semra Hunter. Uh, Semra, welcome. How are you? I'm doing very well. And I'm going to bring the uh, the excitement to the 2010 World Cup because <laughs> Spain, baby, obviously. So I, I absolutely love the 2010 World Cup for so many different reasons. So I'll be the positive voice in the conversation for today. Well, we need one, don't we? So thank God for that. <laughs> Let me yeah, let me just kind of set the scene in terms of the world landscape at the time because it was a long time ago now. It's it's easy to forget kind of you know the years just fly by, don't they? But at the time, Barack Obama was the U.S. president. Yeah. David Cameron had just become the U.K. prime minister. Uh, Sex in the City two was the number one film in the world. Uh, Dizzy Rascal had two number ones during the World Cup. And in terms of the football landscape, well, Inter had just completed a treble by beating Bayern Munich 2-0 in the Champions League final. Atletico Madrid beat Fulham, yes, Fulham, in the Europa League final 
thanks to a brace from Diego Forlan. On a domestic front, Chelsea had won the league, Rooney was the PFA Player of the Year, and Drogba won the Golden Boot with 29 goals. Because we're going to talk quite a bit of Spain, we've got to see what was going on in La Liga at the time as well. Barcelona had won La Liga with 99 points, losing just one game. Real Madrid finished second with 96 points and scored 102 goals. I'll go around the room just quickly. Um, I know, Andy, it wasn't your favourite World Cup. What kind of sticks out for you when you think back to that tournament in terms of moments, in terms of big discussion points? Uh, obviously Spain, and I think we'll get onto this later, but there's a very strong argument that they are the best international football team of all time. And then on top of that, I think, I mean, when you look back at any World Cup, you kind of, you see how much football has changed really and what sort of, what were the dom dominant sort of tactical leanings at the time. So obviously Tiki Taka stands out from men, but also this very sort of defensive minded approach. Again, we'll get onto that, I'm sure. But the way that a lot of teams set up to, to stifle uh, attacking play. And then, of course, uh, the Jabulani ball, I think, is the one thing that everyone sort of remembers from this tournament. Jabulani ball. Love it. Uh, Toby, what, what sticks out in your memory of this uh, particular competition? Two things. So I spent a bit of time on YouTube this morning and was reminded of the sound of Vuvuzelas, which I haven't heard. <laughs> for, that was mine. Oh, of course, heard of course. For, yeah, for the best part of five or six years. But yeah, that was kind of the noise and the background theme to the World Cup was that incessant racket that was in the stadiums at all the grounds. But as Andy alludes to there, the kind of defensive football, particularly early on, I guess, in the tournament and the lack of goals. And I think there was a, a feeling at the time of a real lack of excitement watching those opening group games because there were so many nil-nils, one-nils, one-alls. Um, things fortunately picked up the later we went on in the tournament. Um, and we'll, we'll touch on the games that really stood out, I'm sure. But um, yeah, Vuvuzelas, I can't get them out of my mind. Yeah, they, they're almost one of those things that like, you know, when you start, to, you know, when you hear a sound, and it's going on constantly and you hate it. But then when it stops, it feels weird. That's how I felt with the Vuvuzelas. I mean, Semra, what kind of sticks out in your mind from, from memory? I mean, I have so many positive memories from the 2010 World Cup. I mean, yeah, maybe it wasn't the greatest World Cup of all time, but for me, in so many ways, it actually was. Um, I had moved to Spain in 2007, so I really got deeply entrenched into the football culture from that period on. You mentioned what was happening in La Liga. It was the rise of Guardiola. It was the rise of Messi, of that fabulous Barcelona team that then spilled over into the Spanish national team. They had won the European Championship in 2008. So there was such a great vibe here in a country where especially in barcelona by the way typically catalan people basque people they're not really into the spanish national team but that was a very different case because there were so many of the barcelona players that were going to the spanish national team so everybody got behind it and there was this real feel that they could go all the way that they could win that for once they would actually be favorites because they'd never gone better than the quarterfinals so it was just a really nice time to be in Spain because it was just so much excitement and it's such a football country and there was so much belief that they could actually do incredibly well. Then comes the first game against Switzerland. I'm sure we'll talk about that. <laughs> but other than that, I mean, do you guys remember Paul the Octopus, the Oracle, Pulpol Paul, yes. we called him here in Spain? I mean, for me, he, oh was my God, the best, yeah. he was one of the best elements of this World Cup because he got every single prediction right. It was unbelievable. And thank God he predicted that Spain would win all the games that he 
that he had to choose them in. So, <laughs> was, was the octopus the originator? Is that what kind of started? Yeah, yeah he was. We need to have some kind of creature predict the outcome of all future yeah, tournaments. Was. He was. It was brilliant. He started. He was. I remember. I went to. I went. Oh, sorry, I, I was remember. Just I went to. Um, to. Come. I was going to yeah. say I went to the Brazil for the next tournament. And I remember they were just like picking out animals everywhere to try and pick the results yeah. you'd go somewhere and there'd be a turtle that they were trying to like give the options to or like a parrot and like it always failed they were just trying to replicate full success sounds yeah. like a great business idea give me uh give me 10 pounds and my dog will predict your lottery numbers for you there you go why not <laughs> there you go um <laughs> in terms of the tournament itself then like we've touched on on some of the points obviously and, and some of our memories going into it but this was the first time an African nation had hosted the competition. And I mean, that was, Toby, that was incredibly significant, wasn't it? There was lots of colour, lots of vibrancy, as you'd expect. Um, but what was really good was that the tournament went really well, because I remember going into the tournament, a lot of people maybe being concerned about where the tournament was being held. It feels like every time we go into a tournament, there's always a big deal about the host nation and, you know, what, we might find when we go there in some cases you know there are genuine reasons to be worried and concerned in others I feel like it's just a bit of a narrative that people seem to drum up going into competitions I guess to sell stories and, and it frustrates me because the South African World Cup went down brilliantly didn't it all I remember is a real vibrancy from that tournament every game had a really really good atmosphere and as you said the color um and what we saw in the, I'm going to go back to Vivuzela, is that kind of set the tone in that opening game that was so incredible. And I think many people would, were doubting whether or not South Africa really deserved their place in the World Cup. And I know that there's similar sentiments around Qatar's footballing ability, as well as the other issues that we probably won't get too much into here. But South Africa were looked upon as maybe a team who were not worthy of their spot in the World Cup. But that opening game was exhilarating when they opened the scoring that kind of set the tone for what was to follow um and it's kind of paved the way i think for host countries to to be a little bit different so we've got 2026 we've got the us mexico and canada which i think is going to be another amazing world cup in terms of what we're going to see in terms of culture um and look the world cup should be taken all around the world so that it includes as many different people as it can do and reach a broader audience. And I think South Africa was kind of a trailblazing tournament in that respect, in that it showed that it can be done and it can be hugely successful. And if you put a country like South Africa into the mix, they can up their game and they can actually show that they um, they belong on the world stage in, in some respect. Absolutely. I mean, they didn't go on to, to win the game, but that Shabalala goal in the first game, I just remember that as being one of the great moments of the tournament because it was so, I guess, to a lot of people, unexpected. You know, the Mexican side pretty strong on paper going into that game, especially in comparison to the South Africans. And so for them to sort of open the score in the way they did and, and send the place into raptures was was pretty incredible. Um, guys, we've got to touch on England's performance at the World Cup a little bit. Um, they scraped through the group didn't they really and truly they they didn't impress in any way shape or form they finished runners up in the group behind the USA um Rob Green had a bit of a nightmare against the USA the nil-nil draw with Algeria uh, was pretty poor as well Andy um I remember sort of going into the competition and, and sort of looking at the odds England were six to one to win the competition they were the third favorites but they certainly didn't live up to that billing 
no, definitely not. Yeah, I did exactly the same thing as you. And I was sort of doing a bit of research looking back and I was kind of amazed to think that they were third favourites here and six to one or whatever it was. But you look back at the squad and it's this weird sort of Frankenstein mismatch of like the golden generation who are sort of coming to the end of their time, the Stephen Gerrards and Frank Lampards, and then players that are just patently not quite good enough, uh, which I guess has been, I mean, England had quite a lot of tournaments, but just to think they had Matthew Upson starting a last 16 game. And there was a lot of debate about whether it should be Rob Green in goal and Emil Heskey partnering Rooney in a 4-4-2 up front. It's just really, really weird when you look back at it now. And to think that people actually expected something out of that team is, is almost sort of comical now. Indeed. I mean, Semra, let's take it on to Spain a little bit because Spain had won Euro 2008 and, and obviously the expectation levels were really, really high, but they still hadn't won a World Cup yet. So what was the mood in the country going into the competition? Was there a hope? Was there more of an expectancy? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, they had won every single game in the qualifying rounds to get into the World Cup and they had scored loads of goals as well. So there was this feeling that they would be a dominant force. But I think also there was a bit of reservation, hesitation that can we actually do it? And no one wanted to get overly excited because they were overly cautious that maybe their expectations wouldn't actually be able to be lived up to. But again, I think Switzerland was such a slap in the face because no one expected it. And it sent sharp waves, not just through Spain, but I think pretty much the world over. It was such a big deal, the fact that they lost to them when nobody expected it. But in a way, I think it was actually the best thing that could have happened to Spain because it did kind of give them a bit of a, a reset. And I think Vicente Del Bosque, who is a fabulous, fabulous coach and a great man manager, and he's so calm and he's so relaxed. I think he said to the guys, right, listen, we can't take anything for granted. Maybe we're considered as favorites, but we have to earn it. We have to show that we are the favorites and for good reason. And so by losing, it kind of reconcentrated them, refocused them, recentered them, I guess we could say, because then the pressure all of a sudden was really on. And in Spain, they love to call these games whenever your backup is up against it, you know, like a final. So every game after that was a final for Spain. Honduras was a final. Then Chile was a final because if they didn't win both of those games, they weren't getting out of the group stage. So, again, I think that really did kind of help to bring down the level of excitement and expectations and hype a little bit. Obviously, there was still plenty to go around, especially as they continued to advance through the elimination rounds. But overall, there definitely was such a, a wonderful vibe over here in Spain because of everything that you, you could feel that things were kind of they were in a period where they were really growing and they hadn't quite yet hit their ceiling or their peak. You felt like there was more to come from this team having come off that that win in the 2008 European Championship against Germany. So it was a, it was a wonderful time to be here. That's, that's for sure. Absolutely. So the teams that made it through uh, to the second round were Uruguay, Mexico, Argentina, South Korea, USA, England, just about Germany, Ghana, Netherlands, Japan, Paraguay, Slovakia, Brazil, Portugal, and Spain, uh, and Chile. And then we move on to the round of 16, Toby, where England were beaten by Germany. A painful watch, I'm sure. Don't uh, do it, Harry. You... Don't, get, don't get into it. Don't Let's make do me it. relive it. <laughs> Let's do it. What, what do you remember from it? Because obviously there's one moment in particular that's gone down in World Cup history. 
Well, I'm going to choose to remember fondly Matthew Upson's moment based on what Andy just said. Didn't be- didn't belong at the World Cup necessarily, or it said a lot about England's um, the state of England's defence at the time. He had his glory moment, but like, you can't look beyond the goal that never was. Um, I think had that goal been allowed, then England had the momentum in that game and things would have overturned. But you can't really look back. No way, Toby. No way. I that just, game was not going to be overturned. It's kind of like a sliding doors moment where I think if that had gone the other way, then things could have panned out completely differently. Maybe that's just my heart telling me that that's what would have happened. That's that blind English optimism. Yeah, I think they would have lost have, but... They would have lost 4-2 instead of 4-1, <laughs> I think, is the answer to that. Go on, Andy. What, what do you remember of that game? Because obviously you see it quite differently. Yeah, I mean, I just remember like going to the pub with a bunch of mates, a sort of very awkward university second year student, and sort of trying to get my hopes up for it, but still at the time sort of knowing that this Germany team was really exciting. They had all these sort of young, um, very, very talented players like Ozil, Müller, uh, Tony Cruz. Um, and it was that sort of kind of, for me anyway, it was that last era where you don't really know that much about like the other international teams, I think. And we sort of knew that these players were coming through and that they were a very special generation. But maybe it's just we didn't have the same kind of access to football that we do now. That hadn't really seen them play. So you were just relying on like what you heard in the press or what pundits were saying before. And they were just sort of talking up this team as being really, really special. And then when they came out to play against England, it was just sort of evident that they were just a a completely different level. And all this sort of pre-tournament sort of hype and conjecture about how far England could actually go, it was all just, you know, it was just sort of blown away by the fact that there were just teams out there that were just clearly much, much better. And I think um, obviously Spain were by far the deserved winners and were totally fantastic in that tournament, Switzerland aside. But I think there's a good case to be made that Germany was sort of the... um, the most exciting team to watch in that tournament. And obviously the genesis of uh, of what happened in 2014 started in, in that 2010 World Cup as well. I think that's where that blind optimism came from though, Andy, is that for me, I knew about this German crop of players and how good they were meant to be, but we didn't have the access to social media that we have now. We didn't have the coverage of what was going on in the Bundesliga. We kind of had little snippets and I think La Liga was more accessible back then. Sky Sports had full coverage of it. Um, but there were some unknown quantities, I guess, and because you watch the Premier League week in, week out, and you watch England players, you always feel like, no matter how bad the depth of the squads may have been, and the fact that we had the likes of James Milner and Jermaine Defoe starting in that game, that you know maybe England could actually go far in a tournament. But to be honest, England, we always get lost in our own hype at every tournament we go to. We always think we're going to go further than we actually do. Um, but as you said, Germany kind of sowed the seeds there for what was to come in the years to follow. Um, but I still just think, what if? And I'm never going to let that go. What if? Well, at least you're not France, right? Because France always implodes. <laughs> and they imploded at the 2010 World Cup, didn't they? They had another, what was it, a bust up at the training ground. Something with Anelka. Didn't he get sent home? Yeah, there was like there, there was an incident involving Nicholas Anelka and obviously the coach Raymond Domenech and Anelka was sent home and that led to a bit of a revolt uh, within the kind of camp. And, and France right, actually, yeah. interestingly, finished bottom of Group A behind Uruguay, Mexico and South Africa. So although there's kind of always the what if with England, with France, there's always that risk, isn't there, Semra, that exactly. things just might blow up. Exactly. So there you go. I mean, at least. 
<laughs> you do you, you prefer that you would prefer to have it in yeah, because, like, of England the, the way England yeah kind of because in a way like that's kind of glorious failure and it's something to talk about and it's kind of explosive and it's passionate whereas England just seemed to go out with a well until recently things have been a lot better at least since since 2018 but you look at the exits prior to that and they've just been sort of really uninspiring and I kind of I kind of just would like a big sort of bust up to talk about to be honest <laughs> but the well, other one um, that you didn't so mention you as well yeah exactly and the other one we didn't mention there is italy as well who went out bottom yeah. of their group and i don't know if you talked about this in, in other podcasts as well harry but that continued this really weird trend of world cup winners going out in the group stage yeah. it's a curse yes. now whenever you win the world cup you get knocked out the next one because the same thing happened to spain in 2014 they didn't get out of the group stage so it's very bizarre isn't it? <laughs> it is and when you look at the group stages that we're talking about as well so let's take the italy example paraguay slovakia and new zealand all finished above them that's a group that you'd expect them uh, to yeah. push through there's no no question about that another really interesting point though in this tournament i just want to sort of raise obviously it was north korea's first world cup appearance since 1966 and they pretended to beat Brazil 1-0 in their first game and doctored footage to show on the news in their country, which is nuts. Am I right in saying that they hired supporters as well? Am I the only one that remembers that? I wouldn't be surprised. I think, well, I think... Uh, I don't remember that. Yeah, I think my limited knowledge of North Korea is obviously that it's very, very difficult to go out and travel. So I imagine the people that were there in the stadiums were already sort of North Korea officials and friends of the Kim family rather than actual big football fans but yeah nothing would surprise me but it's kind of that's another thing when you look back it's amazing that North Korea were there I mean it's just it's kind of bizarre and they only lost 2-1 to Brazil right I mean they won in their country but for the rest of the world they only lost 2-1 <laughs> yeah I've uh, I've found the story so North Korea's World Cup fans were really volunteers from China so that's oh, wow. what happened and they hired in a group of people uh, who were uh, a, a combination of, where is it here? Dancers, uh, performers, actors. Yeah, incredible. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy to think that crazy. Uh, that went down, but it did. Another bizarre moment in this. What, what, uh, did, they, world Cup. what did they do for the 7-0 uh, the loss to Portugal? Harry, did they try and gloss that one over as well? Or did they just not report on that? I'm presuming, I'm not I'm presuming sure. the latter. Because that's slightly more difficult to sell. Yeah, I, I it's think it's a short highlights package. That one, isn't it? I think <laughs> for sure, for sure. Um, okay, look, we've we've kind of gone to the round of sixteen, and we've we've jumped back a little bit. But Semra Spain uh, came up against their neighbours Portugal, and this was a really tight game, wasn't it? Um, David Villa proving the difference. That's pretty much the storyline for most of the games with Spain. It was a really tight contest. They tried to just keep possession of the ball because that meant that the opponents couldn't get a hold of it. And that means that they couldn't create any danger, or any chances. And they would basically just pass the ball into the area and then take a shot. It was almost as though they weren't allowed to take any shots from distance. So even though they did create a fair amount, they had a really difficult time converting their chances. And there were only three goal scorers for the whole tournament for Spain, which was David Villa regularly, Carlos Puyol against Germany, that fantastic header that I'm sure we'll talk about. And then Iniesta, Iniesta scoring in, in several games. And that, of course, the final was, was an iconic moment. And it's still huge, hugely celebrated here in Spain. Um, 
But yeah, that, that was kind of their MO, skirting by with a 1-0 victory in the elimination rounds, in the knockout rounds. And thank God we had David Villa because there was basically nobody else who was doing the goal scoring at the time. But we kept clean sheets five times. I can say we because now I'm the Spanish national. So um, I can say we. I can include myself in the mix here. But um, five clean sheets as well. So, yeah, and I think what really helped Spain in a way maybe was that so many of the other favourites had been eliminated, I think, by the time we got to the quarterfinals. There was no Brazil, no Argentina. England, France, and I think maybe one more. Um, but Portugal, I think, also was in a way a bit of a disappointment because Cristiano Ronaldo was in the peak of his his career and there was so much expectation because he was at Real Madrid. Obviously, there was a big rivalry going on locally, domestically, between Real Madrid and Barcelona with Messi and Cristiano. But he actually didn't, if memory serves me well, I don't think he really performed all that well in that game. I think it was it was others. It was more the the supporting cast that actually played better than than he did for Portugal. But somehow um, Spain managed to get the job done in the end and went through to the next round. Toby, were you surprised? Because we, we always talk about Spain and the, the tiki-taka football and how dominant they were in terms of possession. And that kind of became a thing, didn't it, for the years to come in terms of the benchmark, how people wanted to see football played, how people expected football at the highest level should be played. But then when you look at the scores, it, it, as Semra says, it doesn't really match up with the dominance that they showed in the games. Why do you think that was? I think 1-0, it, it kind of paints a picture that it's a tight game all the time. You never think of dominant 1-0 wins, but Spain always had an element of control throughout those games. And as Semra's alluded to, they were defensively solid throughout the tournament they kept five clean sheets out of seven games um look there weren't many goal scorers outside of david Villa in that team there's not many players that you would hang your hat on taking the chances to come their way iniesta did during the game but that wasn't why he was in the team he was there to create chances he wasn't mm -hmm. the finisher so i think spain at that time just had a glut of playmakers they had a glut of players who could keep the ball and retain the ball maintain a terrific uh, shape um, to also allow for some fluidity in their football, but they just looked to David Villa and Fernando Torres to be the two who could actually put the ball in the back of the net. And look, tournament football is always fine margins. No team sets their stall out to go and score three or four in tournament games. It's do what you have to do to beat the opposition. And I think that's what Spain kind of told themselves that was the mindset they just needed to beat what was in front of them and one nil suggests that they did the bare minimum but it was far from that those one nil victories were elements of control and they always had enough in reserve i think to go up another gear if they needed to and it was a team i think as well that was built to have so many midfielders and as you were saying playmakers creative players wingers like pedro or like even iniesta sometimes kind of played as a false winger in that role just because he could then squeeze in more midfielders with Xavi and Xavi Alonso and Busquets and whoever else or Cesc Fabregas. There was so much creativity from that second line that basically that was the aim, was just service whoever was up top, whether it was David Villa or Fernando Torres. Thank God for David Villa because he's the top scorer in the Spanish national team in history. But you're right, there was definitely this element of control. And beyond that, I think it was about trying to physically wear down the opponent because a lot of these teams, like Germany and the Netherlands, were physically much fitter, I think, than the Spanish national team were. And so that was another way of just trying to 
defeat them was just basically tuckering them out, tying them down, making them run all over the pitch, making, making them chase after the ball constantly. And it was really effective. It's actually, sorry, before we move on, it's kind of what we see from Pep Guardiola's teams at club level. It exactly. is, it's mental fatigue as well as physical. They can't get the ball. They're chasing shadows. You grind your opponent down in that way. And that's what exactly. Spain did back then. They kept the ball and they just ensured that they had the lion's share of possession and that in a tournament, what do you want more than anything else to have the ball? For sure. And, and context is so important, isn't it, in terms of adding that little bit of colour to the score lines because people in years to come will look back at the World Cup and say, well, Spain... You know, just about got through every round. That that certainly wasn't the case, as you say. There was dominance, even if the score lines don't necessarily reflect that. Um, we go on to the quarterfinals, and obviously there were some big hitters in the quarterfinals, some mouth-watering ties. Two in particular um, that on paper had it all: Netherlands against Brazil, historically a really interesting matchup. Argentina versus Germany, but it was the game between Uruguay and Ghana uh, that probably caught. Uh, most people's uh, or caught most people by surprise in terms of the drama at the end, the Luis Suarez handball, uh, the penalty uh, as a result of that, and what happened there. Andy, what do you remember about this game? Because I remember watching this game on holiday in a bar, and I was out with my mates, and and everybody wanted to go to the club, and I was like, I can't leave this game. I'll just come after, go, and I'll join them. And, and I remember them thinking, it's really like, oh, what are you doing? But what a game it was. It was well worth the wait. Yeah, I can't remember exactly where it was, but I think it was it was it would have been something kind of similar. But I, I love these games where you always sort of pick out, I mean, obviously when it's the group stages, you pick out what you think is going to be the best um, fixture of the, of the tournament or of the group stages. And then it just it never works out that way. There's always a surprise fixture that, that sort of comes along. Um, I mean, this was... Exactly that. I mean, the context was that an African team had never been to and still has never been to a World Cup semi-final before. And I think after after South Africa went out and the other African sides as well, Ghana just became, you know, supported by, by an entire continent and everyone was sort of willing them on as far as they could possibly go. Um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, what happened happened. Uh, and when you look back at it, I mean, I think Uruguay very much were the were the stronger side if you if you sort of look at those two teams in in retrospect i mean they have cavani luis suarez diego forlan who was you know the best player of the tournament there but i mean just the circumstances of it are so um i mean upsetting really but um yeah i mean what can you do toby he did everything he could to keep his side in the tournament luis suarez he was heavily criticised after that moment. He's been criticised for other incidents in his career as well. Uh, there's no getting away from that. But he was he was obviously the villain after this one. But if you're Uruguayan, you're sitting there going, you got us out of a hole here. I think on reflection, you'd expect any player in any situation to do that, wouldn't you, in some respects, to, to try and prevent the team from going out. It's just instinct kicks in. Um, there's plenty of things that Luis Suarez has done in his career that you've said that he shouldn't have done. That's kind of one that I look back on now and think I'd have probably done the same. Um, and it worked out. It worked out well for your guy, obviously. Um, I just remember the noise after it. It was like the worst thing had ever, the worst crime that had ever been committed in football. Um, but it was just kind of the mental psychology that I think went along with that as well, that Uruguay had that kind of determination and uh, attitudes win at all costs and 
again, tournament football, particularly at a World Cup. That's what you want to see from your players. It just had to be Luis Suarez, didn't it, of all players, um, to be the one who was involved in the incident. But Asamo Gian, have we ever heard his reflections um, on that day? I know he's given interviews, but can anybody remember what he's he said of that moment? Because it had a massive impact on his career, didn't it, in terms of what happened after the World Cup and where his career trajectory went. I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but... Go on, Andy. No, I just remember he went to... I can't remember if he was already at Sunderland or if he went to Sunderland off the back of that World Cup or, or what happened. But he had a strange career, didn't he? Because he spent a couple of years in, in the Premier League and then ditched it to go to, the, go to the Middle East. But I remember at the time of the World Cup, he was sort of... I mean nowhere near Didier Drogba level, but he was he was Ghana's talisman and figure that was sort of leading them from the front. And it, as Toby sort of alludes to, that he was he looked like he was going to be this sort of kind of global star, but it never really it never really happened for him. Um, and I, I don't know whether the penalty would have ever had had a sort of impact long term on him like that, but I, I hope it didn't. But he still had a, he still had a very good career, and he can say that he made it to, as as far as any African team has ever made it in a World Cup. Just having a look, he actually moved to Sunderland in the aftermath of that World Cup, age 25. So he still had the prime years of his career ahead of him, but only two years there and then he kind of disappeared into the wilderness. So did it affect him? Maybe. I guess we'll never know unless he comes out and he tells us. <laughs> he, he did go on to say later on. So at the time he said, you know, I'll never forget what happened. He, he said, I'm over it. I'm stronger for it. Um, but I, I can never forget it. But in a later interview, uh, he went on to say, I have forgiven Luis Suarez. It's part of the game. If it was me, I would have done the same thing in the last minute. If you're going out, you make yourself a hero in your country. It was cheating, but I would do the same. So, Semre, he kind of acknowledged, didn't he, that, you know, it's part and parcel of the game, as hurtful as it was at the time. Yeah, I think so. It sounds like he kind of came to peace with it, came to terms with it. And I think it's also from Luis Suarez's point of view, if we all know his background, it almost kind of makes sense. I mean, he comes from the streets. He grew up in poverty. He, he's a survival, survivalist. I mean, he fights for survival and that's how he plays. And I think you mentioned, one of you mentioned instincts. And definitely, I think Luis Suarez plays based on his instincts. And sometimes he doesn't even think quick enough to to really measure his reactions to things. And in general, Uruguayans are known for being very strong, for being very, very good fighters on the pitch. They never give up. They're very strong mentally as well as physically. And I think in some ways, maybe he takes things a bit too much to the extreme, Luis Suarez, but he is a good representation of what Uruguayan footballers are all about. And I think his case in particular is a little bit different given his background as we were talking about. But it is no surprise that we've seen him kind of pop up and have these moments, even though he's been really well behaved for the last few years. So he has come to a, to find a way to, to rein it in, I guess, a bit. But yeah, you're in a World Cup, you're going out and it's frustration, it's heat of the moment. I suppose probably maybe nine out of 10 footballers would have done the same thing. But yeah, indeed. Um, I mean, also, put it put it this way. I mean, it's the least controversial of all Luis Suarez's controversies. Yeah, that's true. That's definitely true. <laughs> uh, that's saying something, isn't it? Um, going into uh, or sticking with the quarterfinals, as I mentioned, there were two mouthwatering ties: the Netherlands against Brazil. Andy, Netherlands are always a nearly side in the World Cup, but I think when they beat Brazil in the quarterfinals, people started to believe that this might be their year. 
Um, what, what did you make of, of their tournament? What did you make of this game? And, and did you think that they could potentially go all the way and end uh, their quest for a World Cup? I think I did at the time. I mean, I mean, they looked really good. And I mean, if you beat Brazil, I mean, you're always going to be in the conversation. And they had a pretty impressive uh, Euro 2008 as well. I forget, did they get to the, the semis or the quarters? But they sort of came out of the blocks really strongly uh, there as well. But the interesting thing was at the 2010 World Cup, they actually weren't very Dutch at all. They were sort of, and I mentioned this before, a lot of teams took a sort of defence first approach and they were one of those teams with sort of access of, of Nigel de Jong and Mark van Bommel sort of just kicking everybody up and down the pitch. And there was a lot of talk about Ian Robin being a bit stifled throughout the tournament and not being able to do his sort of standard running really fast at people thing. Um, and then they sort of relied very heavily on, on Wesley Snyder for, um, for creativity. So there was, there was a lot of talent there, but um, I did that thing of where you look back at what the lineups were for the, for the final. And obviously that Spain team is iconic and whoever wins the World Cup, you think, yeah, they deserve to win it. But when you look back at the, the Dutch team, it looks particularly incongruous against that Spain team. Spain team, every single player there, even aside from the World Cup, has gone on to achieve absolutely fantastic things with the exception of um, Juan Capdevilla. Um, but the Dutch team, there's, there's players in there. There's Van Persie, there's Robin, there's Schneider. But then there's also like, um, there's players like Johnny Heitinger, Martin Stekelenburg, Edson Brafheide and Elia and sort of players who just sort of think like, oh yeah, I've forgotten they existed. And it's this weird sort of mix, a bit like England, but obviously they had a much better sort of tactical plan. Um, but yeah, it was, a, it was a weird Dutch team, but again, it sort of, it did the job up until the final. Did indeed. Um, also, uh, Argentina took on Germany in the quarterfinals. Germany absolutely thumping them in the end. Diego Maradona, the manager of Argentina at the time, I remember their qualification campaign and how hard they had to fight to get into the competition in the first place. And it kind of ended, didn't it, in um, Argentina scoring a really late goal to beat Uruguay away. 84th minute, I think it was. And I remember it really chucking it down with rain and Maradona sort of belly sliding onto the pitch in celebration. Um, an incredible uh, footballer and an icon of the World Cup and of, you know, Argentinian football. But this was a really disappointing result against Germany. To be beaten 4-0, Semra, was was hard, wasn't it, for, for the Argentinian fans who had such high expectations to process? Of course. I mean, Argentinians always love to consider the national team as one of the favourites to go the distance and to, and to lift the World Cup, especially when you have Messi in your team. And I think that's the one thing that has been consistently going against him in his career in that argument of, is he the best of all time? It's always brought up, whether for good reason or not, but the fact that he hasn't been able to yet guide Argentina to a World Cup is something that kind of hangs over his head. And so I think there was massive disappointment at the time that they weren't able to do better. But I do remember it wasn't exactly a team that clicked very well together. I think there were a lot of stars in the side, if memory serves me well. But for whatever reason, they just didn't quite gel. It didn't quite flow or work naturally because Messi was so used to playing in a certain way with Barcelona that basically they always just kind of built the team around him and they made it work around him and it worked beautifully or he was capable of conjuring things up on his own that Argentina played in a slightly different way and I don't remember if they catered to him as much as they did uh, in Barcelona at the time um, 
But obviously, that's not a way you want to go out of a World Cup getting thumped 4-0 by Germany. But then again, Germany are usually one of the favourites as well. So if you're going to go out, you might as well go out against a team like that in the way that they did. Um, but yeah, I think that was probably... Maybe you guys remember better than I do, but I, I don't really have this sentiment that or I don't remember the, the sentiment that Argentina were necessarily going to get to the final, that they'd almost some ways kind of gone beyond what they're what they could have done for that for that particular year, that they kind of in a way punched above their weight. But um, but yeah, obviously you don't want to go out losing four 0 so I think it was the balance of their squad more than anything. Maradona, yeah, I think they were accommodating Messi. They had Carlos Tevez, they had Higuain, um, okay. Max, Maxi Rodriguez, Angel Di Maria, all playing in the same team, yeah. kind of around Mascherano, who was sat in that defensive midfielder role. That's a very attacking front five. And I guess <laughs> against <laughs> Germany, as Andy's already said, who were kind of sowing the seeds to become a great team, they were just overrun and overpowered in that quarterfinal. Um and I'm not sure Maradona, as legendary as he was on the field, had that tactical nous as a manager yeah. to be able to guide Argentina through a tournament, particularly against a Germany side who was so well organised and had, were full of um, talent, both in defence and going forward. Um, so it's probably My one own. reason why they, they didn't get the best out of Messi is it was a bit of a, a, bit of a mishmash of an 11 in mm. that quarterfinal. Mm. My overriding memory of that Argentina team or Diego Maradona's Argentina team was that he played four centre-backs instead of full-backs. And I guess that, I don't know if that was just his way of offsetting the number of attackers he tried to get on the pitch. But yeah, I think as Semra said, like trying to fit Messi into that team or trying to play to Messi's strengths is a better way of putting it. Uh, I think probably Maradona was just a little bit too uh, technically naive to get the best out of him. And I think you know, if he sort of decided to take up an option as of Spanish nationality, he obviously would be a World Cup winner now and probably the GOAT debate would be all over. Uh, but on Maradona, like, it's easy to sort of dismiss him as a manager, but I don't know if anyone's seen the Maradona in Mexico Netflix documentary. Where he no, goes not yet. A sort of Mexican second-tier team. Yeah, sorry, I'm getting a little bit off topic here, but he comes across really, really well. And he's a really sort of great sort of man-manager in that. So he's obviously got something... And, you know, he, he sort of did well enough to take to take Argentina as far as he did. But, yeah, it was a it was an odd time, I think, to be to be an Argentina fan. Yeah, I, I totally agree with Toby in that the balance was just all over the place. You look at that starting 11, it was essentially one defensive midfielder and a load of attackers thrown on. And then, as you say, four centre backs, maybe that was his way of sort of accommodating for that. But, yeah, I've, I've seen that documentary as well. And I think perhaps the Argentinian viewpoint going into the qualification campaign and then obviously the tournament was that given who this guy is, he could inspire them if if nothing else. And that could be enough given the talent they had to take them quite far. It wasn't to be in the end, but I, I mean, obviously, God rest his soul now, but what a talent, what a man, um, what a character. And, um, you know, one of the football greats, there's no doubt about that. And the World Cup with him at it was a much better tournament in, in my opinion. Um, taking it on then uh, to Paraguay against Spain. Another 1-0 win, uh, Semra, for Spain. But they left it quite late this time, 83rd minute. At any point, did you worry that they weren't going to get over the line? Absolutely. This is one of those games that really could have been a surprise had it gone the other way. Because I don't think people really 
gave enough credit to Paraguay, at least in Spain, um, ahead of the game. They kind of figured, oh, this will be a walk in the park. They're not anywhere near as strong as Spain. It should be a relatively easy game to get through. You know, we've already gotten past Portugal, etc. But it was really, really nervy. I mean, I remember being incredibly nervous the whole way through the game, thinking, oh, my God, this might be this might be a shock exit here. I don't, I, the, Paraguay, I, if they scored, I can't remember if it was the first half or the second half, but it was disallowed. It was a crazy game. It was a really crazy game. The first half in general was not particularly good from either side, but things really kind of picked up in the second half. Then there was a penalty, and there was a penalty, I can't remember, I think it was also for Paraguay first. Casillas saves it. Then there's another penalty later for Spain. Xavi Alonso takes it. But it has to be retaken because some of the Spanish players encroach in the area. Then he takes it again and it gets saved. So it's just like this bonkers game where nothing seemed to make any kind of sense. It just kept you on the edge of your seat. Finally, they did nick it in the end, but they did leave it exceptionally late. What was it, like the 87th minute or something like that? 83rd. 83rd, 83rd minute. Exactly, exactly. So you had this feeling of, wow, we managed to kind of just scrape by here. Paraguay put up an exceptionally good fight. An exceptionally good contest against Spain and in some ways I think they kind of felt like wow we've almost met our match here so they were very close in that game to getting eliminated thank god they didn't um but yeah it was it was one of those wild wild games I think from the 2010 World Cup when you least expected it indeed it was uh taking it on if I could just say on that yeah, yeah um, go ahead sorry if I can just add to that to that game as well I was watching back the highlights earlier, and um, what's clear is if, if VAR had existed at that time, uh, I think the Paraguay goal would have stood. Because really? it, was, it was disallowed because um, they thought that Cardozo got a flick on when he didn't touch the ball, and he was, he was offside at the time. Uh, but yeah, it probably would have stood, so that game might have changed everything. And yeah, to see a penalty have to be retaken for encroachment as well also seems very sort of arcane as well. You don't really get that anymore. <laughs> Uh, we talked about, uh, or Semra talked about a lot, how, how um, Spain just sort of controlled games. And they really did, obviously. I mean, when Spain sort of went 1-0 up, I mean, that was pretty much game over. And yeah. sort of, you could see teams sort of visibly deflate after that. But this was sort of the, the one game where that kind of didn't happen. And Paraguay sort of managed in the same way that Switzerland did to sort of inject this sort of element of chaos into things. And it looked totally. like it could go either way, really. This, that game is a, a perfect reminder of pre-VAR chaos and the unpredictability of football. Yeah. Can you imagine if VAR had been around during that game, the drama and how that game unfolded and everybody being on the edge of their seat? It would have been a completely different um, feeling and aura to that game. Um, we've obviously got that to look forward to at this upcoming World Cup. But yeah, yeah. don't we love it? Controversial decisions that we look back <laughs> on that might have been wrong. Um the other thing, the all other that thing, kind of thing, Toby, is why is Xabi Alonso on penalties? Because every time he takes a penalty, he misses. But they seem to, he seems to keep getting put up for them in the most important situations. He missed the, I mean, he scored the follow-up, but he missed for Liverpool in the Champions League final. Scored the follow-up, and then I mean, he scored his first one. It had to be retaken, and then missed. It, it seems with all the sort of, the, I mean, he is technically brilliant, but of all the options they had in that Spain squad, he seems like an odd one to put up a penalty. I was going to say they had so many good technicians in that team that you could have really put your hand into a bowl, picked out a name and anybody you'd have thought would have been a capable penalty taker. Why he was number one, I don't know. Yeah, For I, me, I, I, I can never get my head around why a striker in general is not the number one penalty taker on any team or 
the standout playmaker who clearly strikes the ball best. Um, I wouldn't have put Xabi Alonso in that in that category. Despite well, it's a specialist brilliant. role, isn't it? I mean, some players are better at it than others, whether they're defenders, whether they're... Because sometimes Sergio Ramos used to take penalties as well. Um, I think almost it, in some ways, maybe it doesn't really matter the position because because it is such a specialist role that, or a specialty role or whatever, that you can have almost anybody who, who just happens to have a knack for it, who's really good at it, take it. And I'm not sure specifically why it was Xabi Alonso, but for obvious reasons, he must have been better than everybody else in the team. I mean, I don't know why else they would have picked him if not. It's, a, it's about the mental side of it as well. Exactly. It? It's psychological it's too. Who strikes the ball best. It, it's about who can keep their nerve, who can keep their core, cool, all of that obviously plays into it. So the semi-finals were set then. Uruguay versus the Netherlands and Germany versus Spain. Um, Spain's probably biggest test yet in terms of, at least on paper, a Germany side who had cruised to this point in the tournament and were looking really, really strong. Um, we'll come on to that game in a minute. We'll just touch on Uruguay-Netherlands, the other semi-final. Netherlands running out 3-2 winners. Um, Giovanni van Bronckhorst scoring the goal of the tournament. Um, and what a cracking goal it was. What was your kind of memories of it, guys? Anyone, fire away. <laughs> Screamer from, it was one of those strikes, but he was essentially on the touchline, wasn't he? It was somewhere where you'd expect him to whip the ball into the box for Van Persie, um, but he just took up upon himself to fire an absolute cannon into the top corner from about 25, 30 yards on the angle. And that kind of brought that game alive because I think that goal was within the first 20 minutes and it kind of opened things up a little bit. Um, but as a contest, I seem to remember that game really ebbing and flowing both ways. And there were late goals. I think it was 1-1 going into the final 20, 25 minutes. And then the Dutch struck twice uh, pretty quickly. That Wesley Schneider goal that, again, with VAR, might have been disallowed. Because I seem to remember that it was either Van Persie or, or Dirk Kout might have been in an offside position and kind of was standing in the line of the goalkeeper and then... A few minutes later, Iron Robbins had uh, made it 3-1 and kind of took the game away from Uruguay. But it was a pulsating encounter. And again, just a kind of reflection on the World Cup as a whole um, from an atmospheric perspective, but also um, just the way things had kind of built up to a crescendo. It was a slow start, but the excitement levels kind of raised as the rounds went on. We've just touched about the excitement of Spain in the quarterfinal and then that semi-final game. Personally, I remember that more than the Germany-Spain semi-final, um, perhaps because we were going to get an underdog finalist and that's the one that we were... Everybody from a neutral point of view, their eyes were all on that fixture rather than Germany-Spain. Yeah, for sure. Let's let's take it on to Germany-Spain. Uh, that one was played in Durban uh, in front of 61,000 people. Uh, another 1-0 win, Semre. It was 1-0, 1-0, 1-0, all the way through the knockout stages. Um, but sort of what was the mood uh, in Spain like at the time? Because obviously in most yeah. of the games they'd gone into up until this point in the tournament, they were favourites. Everybody expected them to get through. But now they were coming face to face with a side who had shown their credentials throughout the tournament. I think there was a bit of apprehension because it is Germany. But at the same time, there was a sense of confidence considering they had met in the 2008 European Championship final and Spain won, I think. Um, and so there was this idea that, okay, we can do it again, right? And I think it helped that Thomas Müller was not available. And so 
straight away, it kind of took the sting out of Germany. And so I think people felt a little bit more confident because of that as well. Not that they were not necessarily able to, to believe in, in the strength of Spain, but it did certainly help when you lose one of the best players in the opposition camp. It definitely does give you a bit of a boost. Um, I remember the goal really, really well. It was a Tavi corner. And Puyol comes in from behind at the far post, I think it was, and he just leaps up incredibly high with this unbelievable header that was just completely unstoppable. And it was nice to see those two linking up together as well because it was just like this unlikely hero in Puyol coming to save the day. But I remember it being a particularly difficult match, um, fairly evenly poised as well. And I can't remember. I think you know they both had some pretty good chances if memory serves me well, but it, it took Spain quite a lot to find a way to kind of break down the defence. And obviously it took a set piece for that to happen ultimately because they weren't able to score from open play. But I remember it being a bit, okay, this is going to be a tough one. It's going to take us all the way to the 90th minute for them in order to, to, to finally get the much needed win. But um, can't really remember too much beyond that other than just how excited everybody was and when they did get that goal the feeling of okay we're through to the final now this is ours when you're super nervous in a game of football you yeah. just kind of lose all the details do. don't you I mean when I think back to games where I've been nervous in the details just go like in terms of how the game went you just remember the key moments it's the apprehension like tunnel vision. that's it exactly <laughs> exactly that and then of course uh, the final was set up Netherlands against Spain. Um, Andy, I'll come to you first on this. Uh, a really bad-tempered football match, this one, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, it was. I can't remember how many yellow cards there were, and there was a red as well, but like... 13 there were 14, cards. weren't there? Oh, 14. 13. 13 yellow cards and a red card. And a red. I mean, yeah, that's got to be a record, hasn't it, for a, for a World Cup final? I imagine there's nothing that's come sort of close to that. But, I mean, it just shows... I mean, the majority of those were on the, were on the Dutch side... I know Spain sort of picked up quite a few late on, um, but yeah, it just it showed exactly the kind of the the way the the styles clashed. Um, Spain did what they were doing, and I actually think going back to the semi-finals, that was Spain's best performance. I know obviously Germany are a very tough side, but they were sort of they felt in control all the way through, and they did, that's where the sort of the, the dominance of the style really came to the to the fore, where they just seemed untouchable in possession, especially after um, after they scored their goal, and I think. Uh, the Netherlands and I think I uh, was it Bert van Marwijk who was the who was the manager then. His sort of mo was just don't let Spain do their Spain thing because we're just going to get killed death by a thousand passes, and it was you know right from the off they were sort of f flying into tackles and fouls and GBH and everything else that was being thrown at um, thrown at Spain to sort of stop them and put them off their rhythm. And I mean, it's, it worked. I mean, up until, you know, that moment in extra time, it totally worked. And you mm. would say that the Netherlands had the better chances. And um, if it wasn't for like the laces on Casillas' boots, Robin would have would have scored when he went through one-on-one. -on -one. Um, but that was an absolutely huge moment as well, because it, it, I mean, it looked like that, you know, Netherlands were going were gonna to go one nil up very early on. They should have had a couple of players sent off in regulation time. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure, no, should have no gotten question. sent off. It was incredibly dirty, dirty play from the Netherlands. And you're absolutely right. I mean, that was the game plan, wasn't it? It was just completely interrupt the flow of Spain. Don't let them 
complete passes. Don't let them dribble around you. Don't let them play around you. And and I think they really frustrated Spain a lot because they were just bullying them. And it did take quite a long time for Spain to react to it and kind of start pushing back a bit. But, I mean, I, that was one of the most frustrating football games I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> one of the moments that's I think from a, gone. Don't I was just going to say, from a from a Dutch perspective, I think um, it's easy to forget as well, going back, that this is um, the last time we've had a new winner of a World Cup. Both of these teams yeah. had never had never won before going in. And obviously the Netherlands have been in two finals before in the 70s and they obviously had a, had a style that was sort of, you know, quite similar to, to Spain. And they'd seen that sort of fail time and time again. And I think they were just kind of tired of that. And they just thought, right, if we can't win it that way, we're just going to, you know, try another way. If we can't sort of, if we can't join you, we'll beat you. We'll beat you physically. Yeah. And uh, I think that was kind of the way they were they were going to go with that, with that final. It was, it was so over the top. I mean, I remember the next day, Dutch yeah. people in Spain would go up to Spanish people and they'd say, I'm really, really sorry. I'm really, really sorry about the final. Dutch people, we're really not like that. That's not representative of who we are. We're really, really sorry. They were embarrassed. They were so embarrassed by the way that the Dutch played. Even Johan Cruyff was like, what is this? It was incredibly dirty from them. He was even upset with what he saw. And obviously, he's a staunch supporter of, of Barcelona and Spanish football and everything else. But he seemed to be really upset with what he saw from the Dutch team and just said, this is not the way that you go about winning finals. This is not the way that you go about playing football. So they, they earned themselves a lot of enemies in Spain after, after that game for a while. Uh, one of the moments that obviously was synonymous with that tournament was the Nigel de Jong kung fu yeah. kick. You know, how that went uh, without a red card is is beyond me. Um, and again, we talked about what VAR would have maybe changed or, or sort of um, altered, and that certainly would have been one of them. But Toby, we've, we've been talking about the styles and the clash of styles, and obviously the Netherlands felt that that was the best way to approach a game against Spain. That wasn't the way they played every week. Let's be honest, it wasn't the way that they set out in, in previous games. There was a, a particular emphasis on the physical side of the game against Spain. But I guess my question to you is, and, and this is easy to talk about in hindsight, but if they could do it again, do you think they would have tried to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Spain, given that they themselves had talented players too, or at least tried to balance it out a little bit more? Because it was all about physicality. It was all about getting in their faces. And I feel like if they could go back and do it again, they'd probably try and find a better balance and maybe create more as a consequence. Yeah, I think there was always going to be an element of a combative style. The Dutch clearly took it too far in that game and that's what they based the entire 120 minutes around was trying to get stuck into Spain and very little else. Um, but on reflection, I don't think there would be too many things that they'd look back and think we'll try and outplay them with the ball because they just weren't going to be able to. Spain were technically a level above. We've spoken about ball retention, playing in patterns. I don't think the Netherlands were ever going to be able to compete on that level. And they recognise that. Um, we see it in modern day club football now when there's clearly a team that's technically superior. The other team generally tends to either shut up shop and put five at the back and then four uh, midfielders in front and it's a deep line or the alternative is really high intensity in your face kind of smash mouth tackling um, and doing anything to break up the rhythm of the game not pretty to watch from a neutral point of view as a kind of watching a world cup final as a neutral that's not what you really want to see you want to see an open and expansive game that entertains all around the world. And we didn't really get that. But at the same time, 
we kind of did because it added a little bit of fun and a bit of bite and spice to the occasion that it was so physical. Um, but I don't think the Dutch can can look back and think, what if we'd played another way? Because for me, Spain were the outside outstanding team in that tournament. And there's not much else other than I and Robin taking that chance and Casillas' boot, um, not deflecting the ball behind for a corner that they could have done. Um, for me, Spain, if they'd have played their natural game against Netherlands playing their natural game, could have been two or three. Just a couple more questions, Semra. So, obviously, there was a, a reaction in Spain to the way that the Netherlands set up and the way that they played, and, and you know the physicality uh, that was was, I guess, applied during that game. We often talk about the officials in this country as being below par, as not being at the level required. They're always at the heart of the controversy, week in, week out. And obviously, Howard Webb was the referee, an English referee in this World Cup final. Big honor for him. But what was the reaction? to his performance, to his decision not to send off De Jong and to allow the Dutch, essentially, I know he gave out plenty of yellow cards, but, you know, as oh. you said, there probably should have been more of a different colour. What was the reaction to the refereeing performance in Spain? I think he was also the referee for their opening game against Switzerland. But I think it was in some ways muted because they ended up going on to win the World Cup. So they kind of didn't necessarily focus or care too much about it. Mm. But... Um, there were certainly discussions about how he allowed it to be a game in which they could just play on. He allowed these tackles to happen. And it was a bit confounding, a bit confusing as how can you allow them to be so... I mean, the Nigel de Jong and the Kung Fu kick is a perfect example. He even said, Howard Webb, in the days since, or I don't remember when, but he's had a, an interview and going back to the part about VAR, he said, if VAR had been available back then, I would have been able to look at it and I would have given a red card because from my vantage point on the pitch, I wasn't able to see it clearly enough to make the judgment call to make it a red card. So he, in some ways, has already kind of confirmed that he made a mistake, at least in that specific example. Surely enough, he probably would have corrected other things or maybe given out more red cards or he would have been a little bit more friendly in terms of showing more bookings throughout the game um, if VAR were around at that time. But I think, obviously, they weren't very happy. They felt that... Spain was basically getting beaten up <laughs> physically and that's where was allowing for that to happen. But again, I think in some ways by the end, because they went on to win and the euphoria of winning their first ever World Cup and the fact that they were the first European team to win outside of Europe, that basically stole the show that took all the headlines. And that was really the main focus at that point. Not to mention that Casillas in the post-match interview, he had the kiss that went sent around the world. He kissed his then-girlfriend, who was a reporter at the time, who then became his wife, Sara Carbonero. So that was also one of the most iconic moments that really kind of captivated the audiences and the fans here in Spain. So there was just so much happiness and joy to go around because of what actually happened that in some ways, I think the focus kind of was deterred a little bit. They didn't necessarily feel that they needed to talk about the referee, but obviously had they lost, it would have been a completely different story. They would have attacked him to death and probably to this day, they'd probably still be attacking him. Andy, just, just quickly, um, we talked about the clash of styles between Netherlands and Spain, the coming together of the two styles and, and where we saw kind mm -hmm. of that, I guess, battle kind of boil up from. Do you think that this was a clash of styles in terms of the refereeing? Do you think that being a Premier League referee where notoriously more is allowed to go than maybe in La Liga. Do you think that played a part here? 
I mean, yeah, probably. I mean, there's not too much more to say about it than that. I think, I mean, Howard Webb, he does have a reputation of being one of those referees that likes to let the game flow. And you see in the Premier League that that's often when, you know, when it doesn't go too far and refereeing is done well, that's one of the strengths is the game is very fast. There's not too many stoppages and, and people like that. And sometimes if you watch uh, La Liga as a Premier League fan, it can be kind of jarring to see how many little stoppages there are for very little niggly things. But I think there's also a limit as well. And, you know, I think Netherlands took advantage of that. And, yeah. you know, as a referee, sometimes the game can sort of get away from you a little bit, can't it? And when you don't give one, then you feel like you can't give the next one. And these things sort of sort of build up a little bit. But obviously, we were talking about VAR. And if, if there had been VAR, yeah, it would have been a totally different story. And Netherlands probably would have gone down to about nine men. And then Spain would have won it very, very comfortably. <laughs> and we wouldn't be talking about, you know... Casillas as having to make a miracle save or, or Iniesta's sort of um, extra time winner. For sure, absolutely. I um, mean, final... One thing as well there, I just wanted to mention, just because um, Sam brought it up with uh, Ike Casillas, and when I was sort of watching back the highlights, um, they were sort of mentioning how uh, Casillas had been had been criticised, and it sort yeah. of it came back to me that he wasn't actually a shoe-in to even start the tournament, and there was a lot of sort of buzz and talk about whether it should be Victor Valdez who started instead of him, that Casillas's um, relationship with Sara Cabranaro was becoming like a sort of sideshow in a sort of posh and Bex wags kind of way. And there was actually talk that he shouldn't play. Yeah. When you look back at it now, that seems absolutely crazy. And the, and obviously he saved the penalty in the court final and had that amazing save against Robin in the final as well. And he's gone down as one of the greatest goalkeepers of all time. But yeah, it's, it's, it's funny when you look back at things and they aren't always as like as sort of destined as you, as you think they are or always going to be the way that they were going to be. I completely forgot about that, but you're absolutely right. You're absolutely yeah. right. That's wild, yeah. It's meant to think about. How things work out, A eh? Final question, uh, guys, just go around the room uh, just quickly. It was two out of the three consecutive major tournaments that Spain went on to win World Cup for the first time, the Euros, uh, prior to that as well. Is this, and I'll start with you, Toby, the greatest national team ever that we're talking about right now? <sighs> I think in terms of longevity and the fact that they won three consecutive tournaments, you can make the case to say, yes, four years of international dominance, unprecedented. And I think it was the manner in which Spain did it and the fact that they helped kind of shape modern day football. What we see now, a lot of it is based around that great Spain team um, and what they were able to accomplish on the international stage, whether or not the entire team was full of you know the class players that brazil had in 1970 for example or west germany in 74 maybe i don't know it's, it's difficult to categorize it isn't it because different eras um different styles of play you can't really put everything into one bucket and say x is better than y but spain have a case absolutely um not necessarily for this particular tournament as a standalone but as a four-year period mm. Absolutely. You have to remember them as one of the best international teams we've ever seen. Simra? I completely agree. And pretty much for all of the reasons that was already mentioned, I think it does have to do with the fact that it was longevity, that they were able to win three tournaments in a row. And again, domestically, Barcelona, Real Madrid, they were such forces in La Liga as well as in, in club competition in the Champions League. And Pep Guardiola's team will go down as probably, obviously, one of the best club teams in history, if not the best ever. And a lot of that was translated into the Spanish national team, obviously. They had their own identity. They had some other players 
as well and they played in a slightly different way but overall I just think that period was such a glittering period for Spanish football and it's certainly the best ever in the country's history that it is very difficult to, to find other teams that can really stack up that can really compare to what was happening because they were such a dominant force even though they played in such a different a different way a unique way at that time so yeah it's 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 very hard to say that they aren't the best because maybe I'm biased, but I do feel that they are very much the best team that I've at the very least ever seen um, in my lifetime. Andy, to round us off. I feel like I should say no to try and be a bit different here, but, um, <laughs> but no, I think they, they probably are. Look, the caveat that I would put on it is that I don't think this iteration of Spain was actually the best iteration of Spain. I think the team that won the Euros in 2012 was probably the best that the side got. I think they evolved through the tournaments and, and we saw sort of a slightly more free-flowing uh, team that had a little bit more, um, had a little bit more uh, like options, you know. But I think when you look at, when you look at this side man for man, I don't think there's another international side in sort of World Cup or international history that comes close really, especially when you look at the sort of embarrassment of riches in midfield. I mean, you got Xavi, Busquets, Iniesta, Xavi Alonso, um, and then you sort of you're talking about uh, players like David Silva and Cesc Fabregas being sort of bit part players off the bench as well. It's it's absolutely it's absolutely crazy how talented that midfield was. There's never been anything like it, and sort of I'd be surprised if we do see anything that comes comes comparable anytime soon. To be honest with you. And I think to your point earlier that you can name every single player from that eleven or players off the bench, and all of them have gone on to have unbelievable careers remarkable careers have won bucket loads of trophies and silverware at club level spanish national team and that i think in itself it speaks for itself doesn't it so i mean just kind of bringing it back to what you said earlier it really is astonishing and i think throughout obviously there's all kinds of legends of the games icons of the game and some of the best football players i think we've just ever seen really so collectively hard it, do to go it does annoy them. me a little bit it doesn't it does annoy me slightly that Captavia was the left back and it's no shade on him because he's a fine player, but everyone else is just so iconic in their position. And he's sort of, you know, sort of seven out of 10 rather than a 10 out of 10. I kind yeah. of wish they had somebody else there, but I mean, fair play to him. I mean, he's got a World Cup to his name and he was a very good, very good professional. But yeah, when you, when you see his name in there along, alongside everyone else, it's, uh, yeah, it's like one of these things is not like the other. Does, doesn't that say it all about how good that Spain team was then if we're picking out one individual who we're saying has not had a stellar career either prior or yeah, since, absolutely. since that tournament? That just says it all about how good and how well-rounded Spain were during that period. Absolutely. Well, we went on for a little bit longer than we planned, but there was so much to unpack there. Uh, it was a great chat. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Andy. Uh, thank you, Toby. And thank you, uh, Semra, for joining us as well. Uh, really, really appreciate it. We'll be back with another episode of our World Cup series very, very soon. So stay tuned. Until next time, take care. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. 
With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.